it's time to join Montana's very own and your voice for agriculture, Talking Ag Lane Nordland, for today's LaneCast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Agriculture Conversation here on the LaneCast Ag Podcast, continuing to talk about issues that impact producers here in the United States, but we're going to look at an international aspect of things here today on the podcast. Our guest is Mr. John Wilkes joining us, and and John, uh, he has an accent. Are you from, like, Georgia or somewhere down there? Yeah, Panhandle, yeah. <laughs> Panhandle of Georgia. <laughs> John, uh, John, and I have uh, come to know each other through the American sheep industry and uh, going going to various events uh, throughout the United States that involve wool and lamb. and And John, for yourself and for our listeners, could you give a quick introduction, a little bit about your involvement in agriculture and how you got into journalism, and uh, more about your background? Wow, how long have you got? I'll, I'll make it brief and brief and vaguely interesting. How's that? Um, Formerly a producer, beef and sheep producer from the UK and cropping uh, for many years, many, many years did that. And uh, so in 2000, I I got out of agriculture in the UK and did some other things, uh, property development and things like that. And then um, I ended up in the United States. I now have an American wife and I live here in the US. And um, so just opposite of Megan and Harry. Yeah, really. Yes, yes. Just a slightly more uh, antique (laughs) <laughs> antique model uh, yeah no so um lived here for the last seven or eight years and I, when i came here i was fascinated by the livestock industry here because it, it, it's the same same but very different to the uk and uh, particularly the sheep sector which was a sector i uh, did a lot with in the uk I used to run a lot of commercial sheep and um so i think it was seven six seven years ago i went to charleston took to the first ever American Sheep Industry Association convention and uh, just kind of fell in amongst fellow thieves, really. (laughs) (laughs) Fellow sheep producers and processors and academics in the sheep industry. So it kind of brought me back. I kind of was like coming home. And uh, so in that, in the subsequent years, I've looked at the industry here and um, fascinating uh, how, you know, comparing, contrasting to what we do in the UK and uh, met some incredible people and made some very good friends here within the industry as, 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 as it's gone on. And also on the beef side of things, I, I have a great relationship with uh, Colin and the guys down at the National, National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And uh, so it led to journalism. I started writing about um, aspects of US sort of meat trade, really, and, and the meat industries here for a, a UK farmer readership. I write for the Farmer's Guardian in the UK, one of the major two farming uh, weekly papers. And um, so, yeah, there's, there's a thirst, uh, I think you'd call it, for um, information about, on a practical level, how you guys are doing it. And, and it's the same with, um, in the, in the uh, you know, I think people are interested, they ask me, how do you do it in the UK? And, and how, is it, how does it compare to to how we do things and um, so there's a lot of commonality but I have to say that on both the beef and uh, the beef and the sheep guys and girls here have been just incredibly friendly and welcoming and I think no matter where you are farming is a brotherhood you could be in Australia New Zealand you could be in the US Ireland UK and, and I think farmers have this common bond mm-hmm. uh, a common bond so maybe uh, looking back at your experience in the UK maybe uh what, what were some of the biggest changes or differences you saw from, from your flock 
in, in the UK. And what part of the UK were you from? For I farmed on the Welsh border country, okay. which is the county of Shropshire, where the proper Shropshire sheep come from, <laughs> um, near the Herefordshire, okay. um, so where the Hereford cattle come from. So that was where my farm was based. So what, when you first came over, maybe the first time you were on, a, on an operation on the East Coast versus an operation here uh, on, on the western half of the United States, what were some of those key things that were a little just different in how management took place and things that you thought, oh, that works pretty well, or maybe we did that a little better over in the UK? I, I think the first thing that hit me square between the eyes, I was living in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I went to a state fair. I saw sheep classes advertised, so I went to the state fair. And judging that state fair back seven or eight years ago was Burton. Uh, Flieger. Flieger. The, From North Dakota. The, who, who then on be, went on to become the, uh, the uh, president of American Sheep Industry Association. So yeah, I, I walked up to the, to, the, to the yard, the barn where they were doing the judging, and I sat there, sat there transfixed. The, the lambs that they were showing uh, were a lot bigger than the lambs we have in the UK. Average US carcass size is 30 plus kilograms. UK average carcass size is 19 kilograms, sort of 44, 44, 5 pounds. It was the size that really intrigued me. And so that led to me then looking at the different breeds you have here and that the reason that you have, you know, that the larger carcass here is preferred because you're after that big loin, you're after that, that, big, that big rib. And um, the... The, and the just the sheer um, difference between the UK in the environment in which the bulk of the lambs on the Western rangelands are produced, I find it fascinating. We don't have predators in the UK. The, the biggest problem we have is at lambing time. You might have a fox, or, you know, a fox just taking an odd lamb at lambing. Here, I tell my friends down in the pub when I'm back in the UK that here you've got stuff, you know, that's likely to take your sheep, your flock guarding dog, and you probably. And uh, so there is predation here that when I un began to understand it and the, and the implications and the huge implications for the industry here was utterly fascinating. And so across all these different areas, there, there, there was just so much interest for me to, to explore and to highlight the differences. Um, as I say, carcass size, one of the big issues, in the, uh, I think here, that, that they have, it, it can be to get some of these big, these big carcasses. I mean, they can get quite big. And I think you know, the industry, and it's not, I'm not speaking out of turn in saying that some of these carcasses just, just get too big. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the UK, pretty much all of the 14 million lambs, that, or whatever it is that we um, have through our system in a year, pretty much none of those lambs see their first birthday. Now, it's not a very good tagline in an advertising campaign, <laughs> but I in relation to um, the product um, and the age of it, um, people will know that most of the lambs will be sub-12 months. Many lambs are only seven, six, seven, eight months of age when they're killed. So it, th there's that difference. Mm -hmm. it, it, it is a big difference. And, um, and, and all, but we have similarities. Both countries are looking at declining, um, declining consumption. How do we attract people to land? You know, we're putting a lot of faith in millennials to get us all out of, you know, all out of jail. But um, then you've got this wonderful uh, move here 
you've got this wonderful move here with um, with the ethnic side of things on the lamb industry. You know, there's so many lambs. I mean, it's in Texas now. Only 10% of the sheep in Texas are wool sheep. 90% are hair sheep, producing these small carcasses, which are very popular with uh, ethnic communities. With you know, and and I think there's a there's so much potential here for the U.S. sheep industry. They've got to, You've got to find these markets and explore. What is the lamb lamb consumption in the U.K.? Well, we're looking. I think we're about four and a half five pounds. And we worry at that. I mean, you know, that that is declining. And and here, I, I saw some figures the other day that it had risen to a pound. I mean, it it, it was it. I think it was around 0.84 of a pound. And I think it the latest figures I'd seen maybe was pushing up to a pound. So you know, it it's kind of going the right way. Um, so, but you know, we do have a lot of older people eat lamb, the same as here. And and how do we attract? The new generation, the lamb board here, do do a, uh, the um, yeah the lamb board do a wonderful job with you know with the, f the fan of lamb stuff all the social media, but I um, it, it's a conundrum for, for for many countries. How do we get more people eating lamb? As we look at the trade situation around the world, John, uh, of course uh, for for United States producers, we saw ch uh, phase one China trade deal completed just last week. We saw the U.S. Senate pass the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Uh, we saw an agreement with the uh, with the European Union uh, this, this year, uh, in 2019, excuse me. But a lot of folks are wondering how the Brexit is going to impact U.S. agriculture and, of course, exports uh, to to the U.K. Could you just give us an overview maybe there and i think there's a lot of confusion around the brexit and exactly what it is could you maybe walk us through what the european union actually is and why the brexit came about and uh, the impact that's going to have on international trade well stripping it back to basics um Brexit was uh, took place between, uh, it was a, a decision taken in the UK, there was a popular vote. The decision, uh, the, the Brexit decision was a decision to leave the EU. Um, but the, the issue has arisen obviously in relation to trade because it's our biggest trading partner. So now the decision has been taken, you may have heard that we had an election recently and Prime Minister Johnson got a, got a very substantial majority, which means that he could move the Brexit process on. It had been a lot, a lot of sort of um, inertia around it. It was getting, um, uh, people were wondering what was going to happen. Johnson has now got a big majority, he's moving it on. So as of the 31st of January, that is when the Brexit occurs. So the, the, the UK will then officially be, be leaving the EU. But then between the 31st of February and the 31st of December this year, the UK will then have to renegotiate our trading position with the EU. So if we want to continue be, being closely aligned with the EU in terms of welfare and standards, it will have to be done during that period, which is quite a tall order. Um, However, after uh, so on February the 1st this year, the UK can also explore the possibility of free trade agreements with, with the US, Australia, and other countries, and Canada. And, uh, there, there can be other trade negotiations as well as the EU. It, isn't, it is quite complicated. So th the big issue in the UK around the, uh, the agreement with the US, and it's in all our media, not just ag media, but the wider media is the idea of chlorinated chicken and the growth promoter hormone beef. 
being exported to the UK. I know Ted McKinney nearly, I think he <laughs> bleeds through the eyeballs when he hears it because he hears it so often. And if you talk to Ted, he's, he's you know, it, it's a big deal. Uh, it's been made into a big deal by the media. And it, it, it's, it's issues like that which are front of house. And, and if we align ourselves, if the UK is, is, continues to be aligned with the EU uh, after December 31st this year, so we're kind of continuing with the status quo on welfare and standards, it will then make it quite difficult for uh, the USTR, Lighthizer, to, to, to really negotiate with the UK. So I think although negotiation talks can start between the EU, between the UK and the US on February the 1st, I think it will be before it'll be the end of the year before the UK knows exactly where they are to maybe proceed with the US or realign with the EU. I don't know if that if that makes if that makes sense. It makes sense to me and and one thing John is Obviously, the European Union, it's a trading partner with the United States for sure, but it's not really one of the biggest trading partners, but it has a big footprint in terms of other nations that take their standards from the EU. Could you maybe talk about, we we talked about how media, and pretty much it's a fear-mongering campaign in my eyes, uh, about what consumers in the EU, what they prefer. And uh, how, how is that impacting international trade for the United States? Well, I, I, I think, you know, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say that I don't think there's a huge amount of love lost between USDA, USTR and, and the EU at the moment because obviously the EU uh, aren't prepared to include agriculture as part of any, um, any trade agreement and the US want to do that and the EU don't. So, I mean, how, how that will all develop, I don't know. Um, but the, the there is um, a kind of a feeling in the UK that um, it, it's a funny one. It's a it's a very close market for the UK. I mean, 18 miles of water, and our, I mean our lamb crop. You know, a huge section of our lamb is exported directly to to Europe, and it's very simple to do it. But but how how this will then pan out afterwards? Uh, is is tricky and 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 the and the of course the EU has just agreed a 35,000 uh, 35, ton um, quota specific for non-home-owned beef for the for the US. So they they've gone some way to 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 sort of offer the olive branch um, by giving them US specific quota because previously they were given quota and then it was used by other countries. And I think, you know, the cattlemen were, were, were aggrieved at that and understand, you can understand that. Um, but the EU has now uh, moved on that and so the, the, the non-hormonal beef quote is in place and that's running. But just how it will all pan out between the EU and the US is anybody's guess. But when we look at, say, Asian uh, nations that have standards in place for, for trade agreements, a lot of those... Um, protocols and and uh, what they want in terms of uh, how they want their meat imported whether it's hormone free or, or not they take that lead from the European Union right I mean I th- I think as part of any trade it's interesting whether it's a trade agreement with the UK or a trade agreement with the EU it, although in in financial terms the actual agricultural component of of, of an overall trade deal is very small but because of um, should we say uh, 
just how society feels about it. Agriculture takes front of house. It's an emotional thing. And so um, I, I think the EU standards, you're probably right. People do look to the EU and, and, and how, how they react on things. Some of the stuff they're doing it, it is very prohibitive. Um, and just what the UK will um, work out with them in relation to what we will go, what the UK government will, will want to go with I don't know it it, it is very unclear it, it is something which I and I don't know how it's going to work you know it, the, the EU are one side the fence if we go with them and the US are the other side the fence so I think it will make uh, trade negotiation quite complex um, if the UK does you know decide to um, to hitch its horse with um, the EU as we look to the farms and ranchers listening to this conversation today, what can they learn from consumer preferences in the UK and the European Union and how farmers have had to adapt to those consumer preferences in Europe? Um, there are always elements of production which become trendy, which, you know, which become, they, they kind of get traction. And, um, you know, the organic thing, it was always going to maybe change things, be a game changer, and that seems to have waned now. What I find interesting in the U.S. is that I see that um, there doesn't seem to be concern about growth promoter hormones in beef. Um, but uh, I see in the media here, and, and is, is uh, antibiotics seem to me to be a, a big game changer. And, um, you know, we... <laughs> On the beef side, it's difficult because the U.S. produce uh, a different type of beef. Yours is, uh, a lot of it is corn-fed beef. It's coming out of feedlots where the animals are getting finished on a lot of grain. Our, our standards in the U.K., we do a lot of grass finish and forage finishing with a certain degree of, of grain. And so it's a different type of beef. So it's hard to compare the two because the preference here is for that kind of a fatter with more intramuscular fat, so it cooks cooks juicier. And uh, you know, a lot of Americans come to the UK and try UK steak, and they find it quite uh, you know not not to their taste because it's a, a grass-fed thing. Although grass-fed here is very popular. So I in in terms of of what we've got that may be of interest, I don't know really. It's um, it's it's difficult. Um, Grass-fed, yes. Traceability is a big one. Now, traceability here is um, a bit of an issue. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, whereas uh, in the UK, um, for example, every lamb, every sheep in the UK has to have an EID tag so it can be electronically identified as part of the EU. So we've got that traceability. And, and I think maybe traceability is something which could be um, something to be developed here, both for the, maybe for the sheep industry and also for the beef industry as, a, as something for the consumer that, that gives the consumer confidence in the product. Um, you, know, you know, if they know exactly where it's come from and uh, I, I don't know, that, that, that to me, so it would be um, taking from the UK would be maybe the, the idea of traceability and as part of our new farm bill which has just come in, in the last two days which we're going to be with for the next 40 years possibly traceability plays a big part in that yeah you mentioned that could you could you talk about uh, pretty much what a farm bill is <laughs> well overseas? it's, it's uh, yeah it's uh, unlike yours which uh, you know part is it for you get four years of it with with this it's the biggest overhaul of our farming industry uh for, for a generation several generations so the likelihood that this legislation will be in place for i don't know 
the next 40 years, possibly. So that there's um, things can be tweaked, but in essence, it lays down where we're going. And what it does, it lays down the fact that a lot of uh, support, uh, price support for, U for UK farmers will now be coming through environmental schemes. And also, it's going to, the Farm Bill is going to give um, more, um, more sort of impetus to traceability and also soil management. Uh, soil management is going to be a, a fairly major part of it. And farmers will not be paid for producing anything. They will be, produced, uh, they will be paid for um, environmental schemes that they take part in on their land to, Im to improve water retention, to improve soils, uh, environmental schemes, replanting hedgerows, and uh, maybe even planting more trees and that kind of thing. So th it is a sea change away from production-based support to, to, to environmental support. And it'll take a bit of getting used to. Um, I think, um, you know, maybe some older farmers will take the opportunity to get out because the, the payments that are being brought in aren't tied to producing something. So you could use it for investing in your business. You could use those payments to uh, increase productivity. So th it, it's kind of interesting. It, it, it's a new way of looking at, at agriculture. And, and it's, it, but it's, the idea of it all is, is, uh, is basically improving the countryside for the public, public goods, so, so that the farmers are doing good schemes to improve the landscape and to um, maybe in some cases let it regenerate, let it go back to, back to what it used to be because there's no incentive on you to have to produce on that land. You can let it uh, become environmentally friendly if you, if you like. So it's a big change. John, I think that's a very good point, and we'll continue to have this conversation right after these words. As a Montana Farm Bureau member, you have access to a lot of valuable benefits. Now you can have your savings on the go with the Farm Bureau Member Benefits app. The app will show you where you can use your membership discounts with Granger, Case IH, Choice Hotels, John Deere, and more. Plus, with the app, your membership card is on your phone for easy access. It's free. Download the app today. Simply go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Farm Bureau Benefits app. Montana Farm Bureau, we care for the country. Your National Cattlemen's Beef Association knows when it comes to the issues in Washington, there's simply no room for gray area. Trade, fake meat, the cost and impact of the Green New Deal. The decisions being made today affect the livelihood of your fellow farmers and ranchers. And what matters to cattlemen matters to us. It's as clear as black and white. Visit joinncba.org to learn more. Well, as we return back to today's podcast with our guest, John Wilkes, originally a farmer from the UK, now resides here in the United States. We're receiving a unique perspective on agriculture from both a UK and American standpoint. Before we started this conversation earlier today, I was discussing how I know some examples of corporations where an individual owns plastic entities and he's buying up ranches yep. uh, in, the, in the conversation of carbon credits and how they are putting carbon back into the soil. So if this becomes a worldwide um, initiative to have a carbon credit system that he would be carbon neutral. Uh, could you maybe talk about what that that just that aspect of people's thoughts uh, overseas? Well, certainly, um, I, I think that the idea of carbon capture and the idea of 
carbon neutral is something which has come really quickly onto agriculture. You know, it's come from nowhere, really. Uh, I don't say from nowhere, but it, it's something which has now become a big issue. I, I know um, the, the Irish government are, are taking it very seriously, and a, a fellow, a very good friend of mine who was the previous ag councillor here in, in Washington, D.C., he's now heavily involved with the Irish side of it. And... Um, I think uh, UK agriculture really wants to become carbon neutral. How they can go around that, um, I think the new government policy will help with that. Now, whether there'll be some element of payment, uh, you know, as you intimate here, that um, you know people will be paid paid for uh, carbon carbon sequestration, um, that isn't on on the radar yet. But who's to say it it, it won't be? And I, and I think I'm amazed at the speed that things are changing in agriculture, on, on the environment, and in, and in, a, in, a, in a good way, you know, it's, uh, di- dis- never mind the politics, it's what farmers are doing. And uh, in, in the United States, the discussions around alternative proteins or cell-based proteins is a big discussion, and w- when I talk with producers or policy uh, organizations that, that are ag-based, uh, they're not going to come out and say, you can't eat that, or, or we're going to trash and talk bad about this, because consumers have a choice. And obviously, for, for lamb, for beef producers, we want to talk about the, or pork producers right now, we want to talk about the one ingredient and, and what goes into beef or lamb or pork. What, what, what is the, the trend over, over in the UK when it comes to these alternative proteins? And again, I, I do want to, because I have a lot of uh, producers that raise pulse crops, such of course. as chickpeas, lentils, and, yeah. and these crops go into the plant-based proteins. So obviously the, it's a market. Uh, what, what's the conversation? What do you hear from producers in the UK on that? Well, I, I think, first of all, the point to make is that um, it, it isn't um, because the companies that are doing the research, particularly on the cell cultured stuff on the on the west coast, I mean that's, this is the U, uh, the US is a, is a big driver on it, and you've got Japan, and you've got e- even some of the I think the Netherlands has a big company there that that is getting involved in it. But in essence, there isn't the same um, when I say a threat, it, it isn't as big on the horizon as it is here. Here it is because it's here, whereas in the UK people are very aware of it, but but not to the same degree. And um, I think they, um, where, they're kind of like where you were here, say, um, six, eight, ten months ago. Because I've, I've, been a sta- I've been following, actually, one of the things I've found most interesting is following the cell-cultured meat thing in the U.S. And if you said to somebody two years ago that you know, we'd be looking upon cell-cultured meat as a, as, a, as a kind of a rival to conventionally produced meat, you'd be laughed at, nearly. But... It is moving so quickly. So I think the UK is maybe 10, 8, 10 months behind where you are here because of the sheer, sheer logistics of it. But, um, yeah, it's perceived as a threat. And, and, I, and I, what I found interesting here, I mean, I'm, I'm more au fait with it here, really, than in the UK, but uh, the UK are almost doing what they did here initially, which was kind of to confront it and to say that it's never going to happen and it's this and it's that. I mean, you know, particularly some of the big animal... Um, uh, industry represented bodies but I think there's a realisation here now that it's not going away and I think you have to kind of um, look at different ways to deal with it you can't like disrespect the people you've got to really look at it engage with them and well you know Cargill's and Tyson are now the two biggest investors in Memphis meat you know I mean they, they every everybody's looking at it differently now and I, I think the UK is at the stage where it was here in the USA maybe eight ten months ago where people were standing on a box and shouting no 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 yeah 
but but they're at that stage, and I think they'll mellow. How do you think the majority of consumers will react in the UK to these, uh, whether it's plant-based or cell-based? Because this is just interesting to me because when when we follow uh, uh, consumer trends in the UK, of course, biotechnology is greatly opposed by most consumers in the UK. And so how, obviously that, that's science, this is science. What, what, what are you, I mean, what, what do you believe that, that that reaction is going to be from uh, European consumers on it. Well, I would I would say on the uh, the European front, it'll be it'll be a fa- fairly vehement opposition to it, um, and probably in the UK too. But it's like all these things, you know. T- time tends to take the edge off things, and you know the the product is there, the product may be there, and then people don't use it, and um, and then if it's been on the shelves for a length of time. Then maybe you come round to to, to to trying it. I mean, I I think um, I think there will be probably a lot of opposition to it, but you do have to wonder that um, in the UK. What I would also say in the UK is that um, th- there is quite a, a, a strong vegetarian movement, and uh, probably maybe a bit more so than here. So particularly with the plant-based proteins you talk about, maybe they'll be more acceptive acceptive of those. But um, from from the industry, I, I think the industry is, as I say, it's like the it's like the industry was here maybe eight ten months ago, where it's like, oh, you, it, it's never going to happen. It's never going to be this and that. And and I think there's a realization that here there's become a realization that they've got to talk differently. I I, I just wonder if if European consumers come up in arms against it, as say they did against biotechnology, which led to a lot of the non-GMO labeling here in the United States, how that's going to impact the trends in the United States when, when uh, consumers say, well, the Europeans, they, they again, that, that this is just my question. Yeah, it's yeah, going to no. be interesting to it, see over it, the next it, few years. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if there's kickback against it, I, I don't know. A, a lot of this stuff is price-led. You know, I mean, if they if they're producing this protein in I don't know eight, five or six, seven, eight years time, and and it's cheaper than conventional protein, and uh, you know, and if the EU does, I I think there'll be more chance of the plant-based proteins getting accepted than the, I mean, because the cell culture isn't out yet. I mean, it's still in it's still in 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 the in the in the, in the big metal in, vat. In the beaker. <laughs> in, in the beaker. It's in the big metal vat. So it isn't. So it's not fair to comment on that. That because yep. it, it isn't here. But but for the plant-based proteins, um, you know m- maybe w- that wouldn't be as uh, opposed as much as possibly the cell cultured meats. Interesting uh, side note, Don Close at the Rabobank was sharing with me uh, just a few weeks ago, looking to Canada and their big uh, Burger King stores, how there is consumption of the Impossible Whopper, but their meat burger sales remain steady. And what they're seeing is actually folks will try the Impossible Burger once or twice. Right. And then... They either don't try it again, or they come back and they and they choose a beef product, which I I just think is an interesting um, side note. Well, that, that is the that is the 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 seventy four million dollar thousand dollar million dollar question, isn't it? Is this a flash in the pan, or is it a, is it a, is it a, a growing trend? And I don't think anybody. I think the jury's out on that. I don't think anybody really knows wh- whether it will become um, as big as everybody thinks it will. As you say, pe- people are funny. They'll try it once or twice and go back. Um, 
for, for me, I think the interesting angle, on, particularly on the cell cultured meat, was the idea more, for, um, I mean, Bill Gates put 240 million into Memphis Meats. And his is from a, a philanthropic side of things. You know, he's thinking that he can have a shed in South, sub-Saharan Africa where he can feed people chicken. And so I can see, you know, that's quite a compelling argument from that side of it. But of course, then there, it isn't just going to happen there. It, it, it's going to be global. So um, acceptance of it, and it's got to be acceptable for everybody. You can't say it's, it's okay for them in, in sub-Saharan Africa. It's got to be safe and acceptable for everybody. So I, um, I, I just think um, the, U the UK is plodding along and... Uh, it, it will be interesting how it pans out. Million dollar question. What's your take on the Prince Harry and Meghan Markle <laughs> debacle? Um, what do I think? I, I think it's, it's an interesting development. I think, um, I think they, they, they were fairly uh, unduly hounded by the British press. Um, you know, it, there's hints of his great great grandfather who had to abdicate because uh, he, he may, you know, the Queen's uncle. You know, there, there, there's elements of you know he had to give things up for the for the woman he loved, and she happened to be American. And uh, but no, I I, I think it's um, I think there was a lot of stuff went on in the UK media around Meghan, which was very unfair. And um, you know, he's a husband protecting his protecting his wife, and I think from what I can gather, some of the, the agreements they've come to, the legal agreements, they've almost kind of left the door open a little bit that maybe in the future, because they don't, uh, they can have the HRH title, but they can't use it to sort of monetify it, to monetify it, but it, they still keep it. So who's to say maybe in, in a few years that they don't join the royal flock again? <laughs> well, I had to ask that one for all of our uh, United States listeners that are, are just intrigued by the royal family and I guess I'm one of those, too. I, I like to fo follow the, the Royal House of Windsor. Yeah, the one of our great exports. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they're, uh, yeah no, I, th I think that the House of Windsor has been in a lot of pressure lately, with obviously with the Prince Andrew revelations in relation to Epstein and, and this. And, uh, you know, for the Queen at 90, whatever it is to uh, come through this, uh, she, she's, uh, she, she, she's a tough, tough lady, and she's still going. Yeah. <laughs> So, of, of course, uh, you, you mentioned traceability is one of the things that uh, could really drive uh, uh, some changes here in the United States. What are some other trends, as you've worked here for the past uh, past decade, that uh, you think would be beneficial for the nation's livestock producers or, or just, just some things that you've seen or, or heard from, from your friends uh, from uh, few and far between, from, from all over? Well, I, I mean, I, I think the fact that, um, you know, that, that there were some concerns when the new administration took over uh, in relation to um, the, the workforce, but I think that thankfully is, 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 is being resolved. And, um, you know, obviously the, 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 the American Sheep Association and the uh, National Cattlemen are, are very hot on, uh, you know, the, the kind of the grazing leases and this kind of thing, ensuring that, 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 that people will be able to continue to, to, to graze government lands and that kind of thing. It, it's an interesting concept, you know, that, uh, that 
a lot of the sheep producers, I think I'm right in saying in, in the US, don't actually own a lot of land, but they, they're heavily reliant on these acreages of, of government land, uh, wilderness in essence, where, where they can um, um, you know, function, and that's how they work. And I, and I think uh, it's vitally important, the work that's being done to ensure that these, these guys can go on doing what they're doing. And... Um, you know, and then yeah, I think I think it interesting was the the thing with the bighorn sheep. You know how, how that that you know initially it was going to be that you know the you know commercial sheep uh, domestic sheep were causing a problem, and now there's well maybe they're not. You know, the bighorn sheep just getting pneumonia. Well, <laughs> it, it, so I mean, it, 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 there's 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 all sorts of uh, really interesting stuff, and 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 I think. Um, on, on, as I say, come back to the predator thing. I mean, the stats on the predator thing are, are stunning. I mean, the amount of livestock that gets e eaten <laughs> by both cattle and, 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 and sheep that get eaten. And I think, um, you know, the, the fact that um, I, th I gather there's, there's going to be continued support for um, ways of c controlling um, um, predators. And uh, it's something I, I can't even comprehend as a former producer myself to have to sort of deal with. Um, uh, a, an extreme. I mean, the weather's bad enough to have to work with, and then you've got things trying to eat you. We just need more fox hunts over here, right? Oh, well, that's banned in the UK as well. You see. So, so, <laughs> they just yeah. ride around now. Is yeah, that yeah, well, they, 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 yes, they, they wear the hunting pink and they all run around the countryside a bit. But yeah, no, so um, we're, um, yeah, we, we, we're, we're very politically correct in the UK now. Well, I mean, maybe you talk about things that are banned. Uh, what, what are some of those areas that. Uh, that maybe impact uh, UK agriculture. Well, I think some of the chemicals, um, the neonics, are a bit. You know, the um, for, for my crop crop growing friends, I, I think some of the recent chemical uh, chemicals that have been um, removed are quite challenging for, particularly I think in relation to growing oilseed rape crops and that kind of thing. And um, the we, I think the UK is looking under the new regime, the new government as part of this bill. There'll be controls on uh, animal welfare, on 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 animal movement, um, distances you can go it within a specified time, and um, this is an interesting one. And I think, it's, uh, yeah, just both countries, we both suffer, and one of my subjects is, is in the US and UK is is the dire shortage of local um, slaughter plants and premises you know it, it is you can't have local food if you haven't got a local slaughter plant and um, I think in relation to the UK and the new legislation on times in transit you know the government uh, I believe are now in the last few days even are looking at ways to maybe um, support these smaller abattoirs and slaughter plant premises to to then make it possible to enforce uh like sort of lengths in tra lengths of time in transit so you can get your livestock slaughtered cl closer to home so it's not going to be in, in a truck for for many hours and and i think uh, i i think i do feel very strongly uh, about it um and one little thing I do do here, which I most, which I really enjoy, is I'm on the board of the Livestock Conservancy, the U.S. Livestock Conservancy, uh, which is a, a wonderful a non-profit which looks to conserve and preserve um, traditional and heritage breeds of U.S. livestock. And that's just all sorts of chickens, that's pigs, that's sheep, that's the whole nine yards, cattle. And uh, I've been amazed at the amount of interest there is here in, in these heritage breeds. And, and I, I'm a commercial guy, but I, I do think that these commercial breeds, both here in, in, and in the UK, 
um, are important because they've got breeds, traits, characteristics that are going to be important. And in the new farm bill in the UK, the government is actually going to um, support heritage breeds as part of this environmental agriculture. So I just put that out there. It's it's uh, obviously here it can't because you've got you, you it's a big scale thing. But I, I I do think these heritage breeds, and I'm giving a shout for a non-profit there to do a lot of good. So what's uh, your your piece of advice for U.S. producers on how to better engage with consumers, whether it's in your same town, in your state, nationally? How, how can they do a better job of that? Because we always say, you need to tell your story, you need to, but in reality, it's really hard to do. It's hard to do. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it's the classic, uh, it's the it's the cure-all, be-end-all, magic silver bullet, isn't it? I think, I think there needs to be more connection between farmers and everybody says it's more connection but I, I really do think that farmers need need to connect and social media is the, is the way forward on this because that's the only way you're going to you're going to connect and there are some great guys in the US who are doing some great you know some um, you know Ryan Mahoney Rob Irwin on the sheep front and, and then you've got these guys on the cattle front doing great stuff on social media community showing them what you do just the pictures and I think that the the industries here really do need to look at have a good look at themselves, and particularly with the with the cell cultured meat, they need to look at themselves and work out, you know, how can we get our message over? What what I was talking to Kat Urbicket earlier. Yes, uh, out of Wyoming. Out of Wyoming, and the, you know the idea of their lamb, you know, that lamb coming off the desert, been eating sage. What a great product, you know, a, a unique niche type of product. And it's about recognizing the fact that people are looking for local. How can they connect with that? You've got to give them the story. It's, it's, it's an overworn, uh, you know, cliched statement, but you've got to give them that story. Uh, John, uh, are there any other areas you'd like to share with or maybe how pr- producers or listeners can learn more about you and some of your efforts? Um, well, I, as I say, I do a column, a monthly column for the UK Farmers Guardian, N- not not the Guardian. It's the Farmers Guardian. It's, it's not. It's an old, very old UK farming paper. Been around for many years, uh, and that, that's my main out, sort of outlet. I, I do an, a monthly article on trade for them. You can find me there. Uh, View from the hill uh, in the Farmers Guardian, and um, yeah, I have uh, my um, uh, Twitter account in John's in USA. So you can have a look what I'm up to there, and. Um, I don't do much on anything else, really, but uh, those are th- those are the two platforms that I, uh, I hang out on. Well, John Wilkes, thank you so much uh, for just sharing a little different view of things from what uh, what we see or talk about at our local cafes or stockyards. I, I think it's so important for producers of all ages to know what's going on, whether it's just down the street or, or over the pond. It, it is. It's very important, and, and, and I'm a big I do, I'm a huge fan of farmers talking to farmers. Um, I was, just quickly, I, I was very honored to uh, be able to host um, American Lamb Board, some American Lamb Board officials for the UK in June, and uh, some of your leading academics, young academics, and a young producer. And it was fantastic watching them interact with producers from, from, from my country. And I'd love to see the beef guys go out and do the same in the UK. Talk. Talk. And that's what we're doing here today. We're we're having the agriculture conversation. John, thanks for joining us here today. You're very welcome, Lane. Good talking to you. All right. As you said, uh, you can look him up on Twitter or in the 
Farming Farmers, Farmers Guardian. Farmers Guardian. UK. There we go. Farmers Guardian UK. John Wilkes, thank you so much for joining us here today. Friends, thanks for being part of the agriculture conversation on the Lanecast. We look forward to joining you here next time. I'm Lane Nordland. Thank you for tuning into the Lanecast with Talk and Ag Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and Nordlandcommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Lanecast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the Lanecast.